Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Think Cap Podcast. My name is Kevin, and it's my pleasure to be your host, and I hope that you had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Let me go over how this podcast is going to work. At the beginning of the show, I will pose a couple of trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers. This week, in honor of Independence Day, each question will be about the history of our country leading up to July 4th, 1776. I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history behind the answer. Now, this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I'll give you a quick breakdown that will hopefully help you learn or remember some facts about these events that you may have forgotten about. And just like every week, my hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you'll be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about different details and events surrounding that question. As you're listening to this, if you're able to follow or subscribe uh, to the show or rate and review, I would greatly appreciate it. Um, it seems like a small thing, but it really does help us out and helps my abilities to make this podcast better and better every week. So with that being said, let me once again welcome you to Think Cap Trivia, and let's get this show started. So, like I said before, I've got a couple different questions for you regarding the American Revolution, and what I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go through and break down each question one by one. As a hint, the questions today are ordered sequentially in the order that they happened. So, put on your history cap and think about that one for a second, sit back, relax and take a moment to think about all that American history that you learned in your school years and let me read these questions for you. All right, your first question is, in what year did Christopher Columbus sail the ocean blue to the new world? Once again, in what year did Christopher Columbus sail the ocean blue to the new world? Question number two, after what Italian explorer were the continental Americas named? Once again, after what Italian explorer were the continental Americas named? Question number three, where in Virginia was the home of the first English colonial settlement in America? Once again, where in Virginia was the home of the first English colonial settlement in America? Question number four, what famous group of immigrants landed at Plymouth Rock and established America's second colony in 1620? Once again, what famous group of immigrants landed at Plymouth Rock and established America's second colony in 1620? Question number five, what was the name of the tyrannical king of Great Britain from 1738 to 1820? 
once again, what was the name of the tyrannical king of Great Britain from 1738 to 1820? Question number six, what 1763 treaty ended the French and Indian War and began Great Britain's dominance outside of Europe? Once again, what 1763 treaty ended the French and Indian War and began Great Britain's dominance outside of Europe? Question number seven, what tax on paper products resulted in the colonists issuing a declaration of rights and grievances to the British Parliament in hopes of repealing the act? Once again, what tax on paper products resulted in the colonists issuing a declaration of rights and grievances to British Parliament in hopes of repealing the act? Question number eight, in 1765, Parliament issued the Quartering Act, which demanded that colonists provide what to British soldiers? Once again, in 1765, Parliament issued the Quartering Act, which demanded that colonists provide what to British soldiers? Question number nine, what 1770 event, known as the Incident on King Street, was used by Patriots to spark a rebellion against British rule? Once again, what 1770 event, known as the Incident on King Street, was used by Patriots to spark a rebellion against British rule? Question number 10, what famous act of rebellion was a statement against the British Tea Act? Once again, what famous act of rebellion was a statement against the British Tea Act? Question number 11, what were the first military engagements of the Revolutionary War in 1775? Once again, what were the first military engagements of the Revolutionary War in 1775? Question number 12. Troops were famously ordered to not fire until what at the Battle of Bunker Hill? Once again, troops were famously ordered to not fire until what at the Battle of Bunker Hill? And question number 13, this is going to be our last question of the podcast. Who was the author of the Declaration of Independence? Once again, who was the author of the Declaration of Independence? All right, so now that I've read all of your questions for you and given you a few moments to think of your answers, what I'm going to do is go through each question and give you a little bit of history behind it. Now, if you are a history buff, some of these questions might not have been as difficult as some other weeks, but um, my goal here is just to kind of refresh everybody on why we celebrate the 4th of July, and um, I'm hoping that hopefully you can even learn a little bit here too. So let me get started with question number one. Question number one was, in what year did Christopher Columbus sail the ocean blue to the new world? And your correct answer 
1492. Yes, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Columbus was an Italian navigator who was born in the year 1451. His early life is not well recorded, so we're just going to skip ahead to the part of the story that concerns our country. Columbus left a Spanish port with three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, on August 3rd of 1942. With the goal of finding a faster trade route to India, Columbus instead found an entirely new world that was unknown to his European peers. The trip ended up being much longer than expected, but Columbus actually kept two distance logs to calm his shipmates. One had the true distance traveled, and the other had an altered calculation concealing the fact that they had strayed so far from home. When they landed on a small island of the Lucayos, they were met by natives who they exchanged gifts with. Unfortunately, they also claimed the land for the king and queen, disregarding the people who already lived there. And to put it very lightly, they were not always very friendly towards the native people, but instead of going down that road, we're going to try and keep it a little more light and easy and educational and move on to the second question, which was after what Italian explorer were the continental Americas named? And your correct answer is Amerigo Vespucci. Amerigo Vespucci is the right answer. Uh, Vespucci, between 1497 and 1504, participated in at least two voyages during the Age of Discovery, first on behalf of Spain and then later for Portugal. Now, the, the Age of Discovery is kind of just a loose term that describes the time from about the middle of the 15th century to the middle of the 17th century in which Europeans were extremely involved with overseas exploration and expansion. Now in 1503 and 1505, two booklets were published under his name containing tales from these explorations and other voyages which he had taken between the years of 1499 and 1502. And while historians still dispute the authorship and authenticity of the details uh, in the booklets, they were instrumental in raising awareness of the potential for an undiscovered land across the sea, and it also propelled Vespucci's name to fame as both an explorer and navigator. During his 1501 expedition, he seemed to understand that Brazil was part of a different continent, which he called the New World. This claim was what inspired cartographer Martin Waldseemuller, probably butchered that, but Wa Martin Waldseemuller to uh, he recognized Vespucci's achievements by applying the name America for the first time in 1507 to his map which showed the New World. Other cartographers followed suit and by 1532 the name America was permanently affixed to the newly discovered continents. All right, and question number three was where in Virginia was the home of the first English colonial settlement in America? And your correct answer is Jamestown, Virginia. Jamestown is the right answer. The Jamestown colony was located on the northeast bank of the James River, which is about 2.5 miles southwest of modern Williamsburg. The group of settlers uh, departed in late 1606 and made landfall at Cape Henry on April 26th of 1607. 
They arrived during a time of drought, and most of the crew members were not experienced with agricultural endeavors, so the spot they chose to settle was almost entirely based on the defendability of the land and not on the richness of the land. Now, the Native Americans who were settled in that area, chiefly the Papasega tribe, met the settlers with gifts of provisions, agricultural support, and tobacco. Now, unfortunately, again, much like Columbus had before, the, the settlers ended up going to war with the native people and all but eliminated the Papasega tribe within only four years. However, by about the year 1610, more, of the, more than 80% of the colonists themselves had died due to starvation or disease. I guess that's what happens when you don't know how to make your own food and decide to go to war with the only people who have had experience producing food in the land you decided to inhabit. But uh, the Jamestown area is also infamous for being the landing place for the first African slave ships, which delivered 20 humans from modern-day Angola to be enslaved by colonists. The Africans had themselves been taken by the British ship's crew from a Portuguese slave ship, and it is really lucky I would say that the Jamestown colony even survived given their extremely high death rate and real lack of ability to settle their own land. They could have very easily gone the way of previous settlements such as the one in 1585 on Roanoke Island which disappeared entirely. And question number four was about another group of immigrants. The question was, what famous group of immigrants landed at Plymouth Rock and established America's second colony in 1620? And your correct answer is, of course, the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims is the right answer. They were a group of English immigrants who were seeking religious freedom from King James I. In the 1500s, under the rule of King Henry VIII, England broke away from the Roman Catholic Church to form the Church of England, and all of the country's citizens were forced to convert to the new religion. The reason for the break-off was actually that King Henry VIII was upset that the church would not grant him a divorce, so he decided to form his own religious sect. Yes, that is really the reason why we have Anglicans today. It was that simple. All he wanted to do was divorce his wife, but the church would not allow it. Now. There was a group of people led by William Bradford that did not want to associate with the Church of England. These people were known as the Separatists and ended up setting sail in a ship known as the Mayflower in September of 1620 for the New World. The Separatists, who would become known as the Pilgrims, hit land in November of 1620, right at the beginning of the winter. They also had a hard time searching for food and about half of them perished during the winter months. In the springtime, though, Native Americans Samoset and Squanto famously taught them how to plant crops and trap animals to use as food and clothing, effectively saving this group of colonists as well. To celebrate the renewed well-being of the group, the Pilgrims famously held the first Thanksgiving in the following fall. And the next question brings us a little bit closer to our own American Revolution. Question number five was, what was the name of the tyrannical king of Great Britain from 1738 to 1820? 
and your correct answer is King George III. You know, after his grandfather's sudden death, uh, George became king of Britain at the young age of 22. Early in his reign, Great Britain defeated France in the Seven Years' War, or as we know it here in America, the French and Indian War. And that's going to segue me right into question six and beyond, where we will go into King George III's reign during the American Revolution. So I'll take that right into question six, which was what 1763 treaty ended the French and Indian War and began Great Britain's dominance outside of Europe? And your correct answer is the Treaty of Paris. The Treaty of Paris of 1763 is the right answer, and the most important terms of the treaty in relation to our story of independence is that France gave up all of its territories in mainland North America, effectively ending any foreign military threat to the British colonies there. The treaty ended up being a compromise for all of the countries involved as uh, a French nevo- negotiator, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this as well, Choziel, Choziel, uh, he proposed a solution that redistributed all the American territories between France, Spain, and Great Britain. His idea was for Britain to gain all French territory east of the Mississippi, while Spain would retain Cuba in exchange for giving Florida to Great Britain. French territories west of the Mississippi would become Spanish along with the port of New Orleans. France would also cede territories in India, Africa, and in other places, but would regain the Caribbean islands that British forces had captured during the war. So now that all of that was settled, we will move on to the beginnings of King George's attempts at controlling his new territories overseas. And that brings us to question number seven, which was what tax on paper products resulted in the colonists issuing a declaration of rights and grievances to British Parliament in hopes of repealing the act? And your correct answer is the Stamp Act. Now, since the end of the war benefited the American colonists just as much as pretty much anyone else in the British Empire, the British government decided that it would be only fair for the colonists to share a part of the war's costs. One of their ways of doing this was the application of the Stamp Act onto the American colonies. This act imposed a direct tax on the British colonies in America and required that many printed materials in the colonies, such as legal documents, magazines, playing cards, newspapers, among other things, be produced on stamped paper produced in London carrying an embossed revenue stamp. These items had to be paid in British currency, not in colonial paper money. In response to this, colonists set up the Stamp Act Congress in 1765 in New York City, which was the first gathering of elected representatives from American colonies to come up with an effective form of protest against British taxation. They ended up writing the Declaration of Rights and Grievances, which does not specifically mention the Stamp Act, but clearly was written because of the taxation that was levied upon them without their input. Amongst the points in the document were the following. Colonists owe to the crown the same allegiance owed by subjects born within the realm. Colonists owe to parliament all due subordination. 
colonists possessed all the rights of Englishmen. Trial by jury is a right. The use of admiralty courts was abusive. Without voting rights, Parliament could not represent the colonists, and there should be no taxation without representation. And finally, only the colonial assemblies had a right to tax the colonies. Now, in response to this, eventually the Stamp Act was later repealed in 1766. All right, and then question number eight was in 1765, just two days after the Stamp Act was imposed on the colonists, actually, Parliament issued the Quartering Act, which demanded that colonists provide what to British soldiers? And your correct answer is housing or lodging was necessary for the British soldiers. Uh, this summary of the act from history.com sums it up pretty well, so I'm just going to read this here. The Quartering Act of 1765 required the colonies to house British soldiers in barracks provided by the colonies. If the barracks were too small to house all the soldiers, then localities were to accommodate the soldiers in local inns, stables, alehouses, um, houses that were selling wine, all of the above, and then uh, the act read, should there still be soldiers without accommodation, after such public houses were filled, the colonies were then required to take, hire, and make fit for the reception of His Majesty's forces, such as so many uninhabited houses, outhouses, barns, or other buildings, as shall be necessary. Essentially, this is saying that if necessary, it was the colonists' responsibility to make sure that the British forces were well taken care of and had a place to sleep. Being that the colonists already did not enjoy having British soldiers in their midst, let alone in their homes, the fact that some soldiers demanded lodging rather than just inquiring about housing as the act was originally intended caused tensions to rise between the colonists and the representatives of the royal forces. And that tension will bring us to question number nine, which was what 1770 event known as the incident on King Street was used by patriots to spark a rebellion against British rule? And your correct answer here is the Boston Massacre. Now, as tensions continued to rise, small fights between colonists and soldiers were increasingly common. Consequently, tensions between British loyalists and American patriots grew as well. On February 22nd, a mob of patriots attacked a known loyalist store by tossing stones at it. Ebenezer Richardson, who lived near the store, tried to break up the crowd by firing his gun through the window of his home. And surprisingly, it didn't end well. His bullet struck and killed an 11-year-old boy named Christopher Sider, only enraging the Patriots further. Now, fast forward a couple weeks on March 5th of 1770, an angry mob of Patriots gathered in front of the Customs House on King Street in Boston. Private Hugh White, who was the only British soldier guarding the Customs House, retaliated against the crowd and struck someone with his bayonet, which made the crowd further retaliate by throwing ice and snowballs until White eventually had to call for backup. The British soldiers took a defensive position in front of the customs house, and what happened next is debated amongst historians, 
But what we do know is that while the British soldiers were being pelted with snowballs and other items, a single shot rang out. Now, once this happened, the rest of the soldiers opened fire on the mob and ended up killing five colonists. Within hours, patriots were using the massacre as anti-British propaganda that drove the wedge between the colonists and Great Britain even further. So question number 10 was probably one that you got right. The question was, what famous act of rebellion was a statement against the British Tea Act? And that answer would of course be the Boston Tea Party. Now, colonists consumed about 1.2 million pounds of tea every year. So Great Britain really had no plans to repeal the tax on tea that it had imposed in 1773. The Sons of Liberty, however, had other plans. The Sons of Liberty were a group of revolutionists who greatly opposed British taxation. Members of the group included famous patriots such as Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Benedict Arnold, Patrick Henry, and Paul Revere. On December 16th of 1773, three large ships carrying tea from a British East India Company were stationed in Boston Harbor. Disguised as Native Americans, the group departed their local meeting place and snuck aboard the ships, dumping 342 chests of tea into the harbor. Actually, because of their disguises, only a single participant was ever arrested for the destruction of property. But naturally, the act of rebellion enraged King George III, who countered by passing the Coercive Acts, which would later become known as the Intolerable Acts. These acts had the following implications. Boston Harbor was closed until the tea lost in the Boston Tea Party was paid back for. The Massachusetts Constitution was ended, as were free elections of town officials in the town. Judicial authority was moved to Britain and British judges essentially establishing martial law in Massachusetts. The freedom of worship was extended to French Canadian Catholics under British rule, which angered the most of the colonists who were majorly Protestant at the time. Now, by this point, it was clear that a military struggle between the two sides would end up resolving the power struggle between the host country and its colonies. It was all but inevitable. And that brings us to question 11, which was, what were the first military engagements of the Revolutionary War in 1775? And your correct answer is that there were two back-to-back, -back, being the battles of Lexington and Concord. On April 19th of 1775, about 700 British troops arrived in Lexington and found a group of approximately 77 revolutionist militiamen in the town square. The British commander ordered the group to put down their weapons, but just then a shot rang out, and after a skirmish, Eight militiamen had died, and the British troops just continued on their way to Concord with only one man who was injured. Uh, Concord's about 18 miles away from Boston, for reference. In Concord, the troops decided to burn what arms they could find there in hopes of slowing any rebellion attempts by getting rid of uh, the colonists' arms. And when the fire spotters in the town saw the fire, as it became larger and larger, um, actually larger than the British had intended, um, the fire spotters feared that they were under attack 
and they gathered their local militia to confront the Redcoats. The British were defending Concord's North Bridge and actually fired onto the militiamen first, but ended up falling back when the colonists returned fire. This exchange of gunfire would become known as the shot heard round the world. The American Revolution had begun. Because of how quickly the militia was able to gather, they became known as the Minutemen, being ready to fight on a minute's notice. Over 2,000 Minutemen had gathered to fire at the British from wherever they could, essentially from behind trees, fences, or even their own houses in order to drive the British out of town. And even once the British were retreating out of town, there were still Minutemen all over the place firing at them. In the end, about 250 British soldiers were killed in those beginning battles of this great war. And question number 12 was, troops were famously ordered to not fire until what at the Battle of Bunker Hill? And your correct answer is to not fire until you see the whites of their eyes, so goes the tale. The Battle of Bunker Hill was fought on June 17th of 1775 during the Siege of Boston in the early stages of the American Revolutionary War. Now, this has always been one of my favorites from the Revolutionary War, and I suspect it has to do with the Schoolhouse Rock song that contains the quote, but although the quote itself is mostly legend, the story goes that the rebels knew that they lacked the supplies to engage in a long battle with the British. Now, their 1,200 troops under the command of William Prescott learned that the British were planning on fortifying unoccupied Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill, so they raced to claim the lands first. And because they held an advantageous position on the hills, they decided to withhold their fire until the British had advanced so closely that they could inflict the most damage possible with the resources that they did have. In the end, the colonial troops were forced to retreat from their positions when they ran out of ammunition, marking the skirmish as a victory for the British. However, because of their tactical decisions by not firing till they see the whites of their eyes, the colonists were able to claim 1,054 casualties, uh, 226 dead and 828 wounded on the British, and that casualty count would be the highest suffered by the British in any single encounter during the entire war. And finally, we have question 13. Our last question of the podcast, who was the author of the Declaration of Independence? And your correct answer is Thomas Jefferson. Yes, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. The Continental Congress, which was a convention of delegates from a number of colonies during the height of the American Revolution, who essentially acted collectively to determine the best course of action for the people who occupied the 13 colonies, met in Philadelphia, which acted as the first capital of what would become the United States. They elected a five-man committee, which was headed by Jefferson, but also included John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and Robert R. Livingston of New York. The other men called upon Jefferson to take on the majority of the work because of his respected reputation for eloquence in the fight for American independence. And as you know, and most likely celebrated over the past weekend, the Declaration of Independence from Great Britain was signed into effect on July 4th of 1776 and America would go on to win the war and gain its status as its own independent country. 
And while the morality of some of our earliest settlers and forefathers can rightly be questioned, the system that they set up for future Americans is one that has stood the test of time. And no system is entirely perfect. Still today, we are struggling with issues concerning racial equality and wealth distribution. But I believe that even though there are battles yet to be fought to change the country for the better, just the fact that these men a couple hundred years ago succeeded in setting up a land where we can even have a hope of reaching true equality amongst mankind is something beautiful and worth celebrating. Now that brings us to the end of our show. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me and I hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, I would greatly appreciate you sharing it with a friend or fellow trivia lover. I'm releasing podcasts every week, so in order to stay up to date with what I'm putting out, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow along on Facebook with the same name. In both profiles, there are links to each streaming platform where the show is available, in addition to fun content that's posted every couple of days to keep you thinking. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review, like, subscribe, or follow if possible. Any feedback from you guys is huge and really, really helps us out, like I said before. In addition, I would love to hear what you guys want to learn. If you have any fun trivia facts or want questions pertaining to certain topics, please leave that in your feedback or feel free to comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts. So once again, uh, thank you for listening. I hope you had a great 4th of July weekend and I will catch you next week.